Welcome, everyone, to Unsafe Space. I'm your host, Carter Laren, and I'm joined, as normal, by Carrie Smith. Hello, Carter. Howdy, Carrie. Uh, today, we're excited to talk to Brian Sharp, also known as Hotep Jesus. Brian is an author, entrepreneur, performance artist, and marketing guru. He began his career on Twitter, where he aimed to publish viral tweets. He went on to work as a marketer for 50 Cent Energy Drink. And it was during his involvement in the hip-hop industry that he experienced his spiritual awakening. When a heckler on Twitter asked him if he was some kind of Hotep Jesus, Sharp <laughs> adopted this as his new name. Uh, he's now widely recognized as the Hotep movement leader and has appeared on a variety of media outlets, everything from Fox News to Joe Rogan. You can follow him on Twitter if you're not already um, at Hotep Jesus. You can follow him on YouTube, on the Hotep Jesus YouTube channel. He's got a bunch of books at briansharp.co. Uh, you can visit hotepnation.com. We'll put links to all the ways to follow him in the show notes below. Brian, welcome to Unsafe Space. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, and um, thank you for that intro. It was very, very, very lovely and warming. Thank you. Well, it makes you sound like the baller that you are. I do. I think <laughs> I have. I have. I think I have your Twitter marketing book. I'm a Twitter failure, though. So I read the marketing book and I was like, oh, this is why I suck at Twitter. I don't do any of these things. Uh, at least it makes sense to me. <laughs> yeah, Twitter's a beast, man. It's it's probably the 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 hardest social media network to grow a following on um when you get the hang of it it just starts rolling um very special place to be i love twitter that's my baby it's pretty much the only social network i'm super active on yeah yeah so you know the book is very meta dominate twitter um my techniques are very meta you know what you'd expect from a social media book is not what you'd get from that um and a lot of the practices in that book are very much uh, can be used in in all sorts of uh, life uh, experiences and events, et cetera. Um, but that's basically um, everything that was in my head. See, what was happening was I had like all these ideas swirling, actually rules. I had rules swirling in my head when I used Twitter. And I'm like, I got to like get them out of my head. And I was like, oh, wait, this is great material for a book. So I just dumped everything into this book and then I released it to the world. Um, and it's been great. A lot of people um, have been using it and, and seen success. One of my greatest students, he's about to do a million bucks. Um, he said, I think he's that I think he's projected to do 800,000 by next January in the past I would say about two years now. 18 in 18 months, he did a half a million in revenue. Wow. wow. Would, is it safe to say that the book then is, uh, when you say it's meta, is it all, could it be considered like a mindset book, like attitude? Yeah, absolutely. Book? Absolutely. It's got a lot of that in there. In fact, uh, one of the reviews I got said, Brian would change your mind from a consumer to a producer because a lot of people find that being an entrepreneur is daunting. And it's like, once I show you like a few tips and tricks, you're like, oh, I can do this. It's like, yeah, anybody can be an entrepreneur. It's not that hard. But I think that, you know, I had to take a lot of knocks um, to, to, to understand what is truly marketing, what is truly branding, because you get a lot of this stuff from people who say this is marketing versus this is branding. But really, that stuff is like advertising and promotion. And I teach some of that stuff. But really, what makes people stick, you know, and the organicness? That's what I specialize in. How do you cultivate a following, you know, organically? And and that's mm -hmm. what I focus on. Yeah. Cool. 
Well, I, I well, I would like to start with you defining Hotep for us because I did an informal poll among friends who I would say are a little bit more maybe normies, and they had not heard Hotep. And then I was tr- struggling to define it myself. Would you just tell me what your definition is? Yeah. So Hotep is an ancient Medunetter uh, term, and that's uh, ancient Egyptian um, term. Uh, the language is called uh, Medunetter. And um, Hotep in, in ancient times meant peace or satisfaction to be at rest. Um, and then um, uh, the black liberal has picked it up and used it as a pejorative to hurl invective comments at people who don't think like them. And uh, I I grew up to, you know, cherish this term. You know, when we used the word hotep, it was more like a greeting, right? Like, you know, hotep, how you doing? You know, peace. Right? It was used in that manner. And because you know, it's in the black community, it's called the conscious community, very uh, popular in Harlem, 125th Street um, and beyond, of course. Um, but we greet each other with this term, hotep. Now, the black community has a dichotomy between this um, black liberal and then this conscious community. And um, the black liberal has... Uh, identified that we use that term hotep and called us hotep. So they flipped it to this pejorative noun. And I'm just like, when they first did this around the time of um, Trayvon Martin, Mike Brown murdered and all of that, um, I was providing, you know, uh, I was saying, you know, black economics is the way let's focus on ourselves. Da, 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 da. And they're like, shut up, hotep, shut up, hotep, hotep. And I'm like, you can't be a hotep. Like that's not how the word is used, but they were dragging it through the muds. So I was like, somebody has to stop this. You know, mm-hmm. not going to allow this to happen, not on my watch. So we grabbed it and exalted it. And here we are today, you know, the foremost movement of Hotep. Well, so when you say you were focused on black and black economics and the uh, black liberals were dismissing that, can you just dig into a little bit about what you mean by that? Because I think a lot of people aren't sure even even what that means. Like, do you align mm-hmm. yourself with conservatives? Are you something different from both? When you say liberal, do you mean like classical liberals or social justice warriors? Like, what's the yeah SAWs? Um, yeah, classic liberals. Um, liberalism as a whole, whether classical or neo, uh, I find to be um, white supremacist in nature. Um, to use that term loosely, Um, but conservatives, we definitely are way more aligned with them. Um, but uh. Can you repeat the question one more time? I just want to make sure I answer it. I, I you know what? It was a crappy question because there's a lot of jumbled stuff in there. So I asked about yeah. black economics a little bit, but I was asking oh, you yeah, to black separate, economics. Right, right. So yeah, separate so, yourself out from from the others. So so yeah. the, the thing is that they complain about they complain about like let's say police brutality, right? Or they complain about um, poverty, inequity, and these things. And to me, these things are just a product of not controlling your environment not controlling your economics. Economics is exchange of scarce goods and resources as defined by Thomas Sowell in his book, Basic Economics. So if we're going to rise up, I guess you could say the class ranks, you would have to control the exchange of your scarce goods and resources as opposed to be begging other people for that. So I said, you know, if we controlled our communities and and the cops were black, 
you know, you police brutality, in my opinion, would still be a problem. You just wouldn't be able to attach race to it. Mm. <laughs> you know, so that would Fair. be, you know, one one piece of the puzzle um, has been solved. Uh, the race problem. Um, you know, when we look at uh, Japanese, Japanese in America were placed in internment camps. Well, they're one of the uh, highest earners in America. Um you know, and uh, shout out to Masayoshi's son, richest man in Japan. Um, Japanese do very well for themselves uh, globally. Um, and they didn't do that by crying to Congress. You know, they, <laughs> they did that by practicing group economics. Um, you know, like I watched the latest Ip Man and the latest Ip Man was like very interesting on how the Chinese operated, where they had a governing body here in America that represented uh, the Chinese interest. And when the Chinese came over here, you know, you basically went through this Chinese body out in California and they helped you assimilate to the economics of America. Well, we don't really have a governing body that hasn't had the nose of the white liberals stuck into it. Mm. Right. So it's like, where are our governing bodies? Where do we I guess where's our accountability? Right. And, and, and I think that. Uh, even when it comes to my own experience, um, I was down for a really long time. And the only way I came up was because I looked in a mirror and I said, everything that's in your life is your fault. You put it there, whether consciously or subconsciously, you put it there. This is your fault. And it, it was funny because the moment I took on this mindset, I had so much control over my life. And then I rose. I rose to prominence. And I'm like, well, this can work for a group just as easy. Yeah. Accountability. Just be accountable for what it is you do to your community, because, yes, we've been um, arrested uh, uh, um, uh, mentally. <laughs> uh, we've been arrested physically. Um, and there are things that the government has done to us, but nothing has been more detrimental to the black community than integration, than uh, welfare programs. Like these things are the things that really destroyed black America, not you know, the racist and burning of uh, crosses on our lawns, that stuff was, you know, eh, you know, very uh, peripheral. Um, so for me, it was like, what do what do we blame ourselves for? Where can we change things for the black community ourselves? Because it's like you think your enemy is going to help you. If you say white people are right. white supremacists and your enemy, why would you go to them for help? That doesn't even make any that, that, that doesn't jive with my common sense. But you can say what's in our control. And there's a lot in our control. So let's start there and we can worry about the enemy later. That really resonates with me because it it's sort of uh, I, I was uh, in that social justice leftist world for about two decades. And that that epiphany that there are certain things i have control over and that everything that's in my life it's almost it's almost a little bit like what they teach you in aa that you have a part in everything mm. all of your list of grievances you can find your part in them it, it may not be a big part in all of them but you've got some responsibility there for why these things have happened to you yes and they encourage you to take that and you're right and at least in my experience once I started to do that slowly over time, it's amazing how it builds your self-esteem. Mm -hmm. And then you're no longer sort of this, you know, put upon victim of society. 
or at least that's the way I, I stopped feeling that way when I walked into rooms, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I have a question then, cause you're talking about, um, you made me think of like in Los Angeles in Koreatown, I have a friend who's Korean and she was telling me how there's this sort of informal, uh, banking system. There are Korean banks, there are Korean churches, there are people who will loan you money. If you're Korean, they will support you. And it, and it seems to be this separate but very positive way of building up the community, the Korean community in L.A. Mm-hmm. And I had I didn't know anything about that at the time. Is that sort of the future yes. that you're envisioning? Yes, yes. You know, I live in New Jersey. In New Jersey, we have a large Indian population, especially here in Central Jersey. And when you go to you know what we call Little New Delhi, they got everything. They got everything they need right there. They got their own bank. The, the name of the bank, I can't even pronounce. I can't read it. The name of their restaurants, they <laughs> name after themselves. In fact, I used to get sushi from this place uh, around the corner. Great sushi. I'd order it almost nearly every day, right? And one day the place was gone and it was replaced by uh, a new Indian restaurant. And I'm like, you know, the, the racist side of me is like, oh my God, they're taking over. But really, <laughs> no, <laughs> they're just practicing nepotism, right? But I think what they do well is, and there was even an Italian restaurant I used to go and get bread from. That thing's gone and that's replaced by an Indian restaurant, right? So, you know, um, I think what they do is because there's such a large population in a small area, they don't necessarily boycott those restaurants. Mm-hmm. They'll just patronize their own places to where the other restaurants just can't afford to stay in business. And then once they got a business, they come in a bob spot and then they start flooding those spots and start supporting those places. Um, next to my gym, there was, uh, I can't remember was there, big, large store was there at one point. Now it's a department store for Indian people. You know what I mean? And I think that's something that's very beautiful. And this is something that all people can practice. I was on a podcast earlier and um, I was saying that I was a fan of Jim Crow. I think Jim Crow was a great thing. White pe- wow. White people. Oh, yeah. White people wanted to have white only spaces. Good. That that that's great. They should have freedom of association. And when you look at the black economics under Jim Crow, we were doing much better then than we are now. Our poverty rates have increased since integration. When we talk about Tulsa, Black Wall Street, right? And Black Wall Street not only existed in Tulsa, it existed in Chicago and Detroit. Where is that now? Where is that now? <laughs> are, are, so are you are your your argument is that you're you're opposed to integration, like legally forced, forced integration. integration. Yes. Uh, it, are you separating that from voluntary integration? I'm hope. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. If people voluntarily. First of all, you got to understand black people and white people have voluntarily mingled for centuries. Even when it was illegal. On the plantation, white folks used to go to the plantation at night and go party. They'd sneak onto the plantation and party with black folks and then leave before sunup, right? This is Thaddeus Russell, Renegade Histories, went and dug up some of this research. And this is stuff I just knew was happening because I'm looking at society today and I'm like, I don't think racism was inherent. I, I feel like there had, not every white person had to be evil everywhere all the time because then how do you get to the point now where we party and we hang out and then we start looking at like black music right 
and how much white people have loved black music. And the more you go back, the more you see white people enjoying black music and breaking color lines, right? So I'm like, yep. that's not that's not something that 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 happens because of some law that's passed. That's natural. People want to mingle together. But I think what happened was scarcity is what brought about Jim Crow, right? When we bring, so. for example, when we look at scarcity of jobs, right? We look at socialist, um, socialist ideology of the past when he brought about the unions and whatnot. Well, let's talk about minimum wage. I always talk about this. Walter E. Williams wrote a book about minimum wage in South Africa. Well, minimum wage in South Africa was created out of racist ideals. Black people in Africa were competing for jobs based upon wage. So they installed minimum wage, which means you couldn't no longer compete. So you just, all right, I'll just hire the white guy. Same thing happened in America. The, the history of minimum wage is racist. Same so, with gun control, by the way. Yes, same thing with gun control out there in Oakland, right? Yeah, with the Black Panther Party. Yep. These things that we think are great were actually have roots in racism. So when we're in America and we wanted to compete based upon wage, what'd they do? They brought in the Irish and they brought in the Italians, right? And then they started competing upon wage. Then the Negro undercut them. And then they said, all right, enough of this undercutting stuff. Let's lobby for minimum wage. We used to lobby for minimum wage. Now it's like, oh man, now we're now we can no longer compete. Okay, that's crazy. I've never thought of it that way before. That's very I interesting. <laughs> I know, I know. All of these socialists and communist I, uh, 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 policies are not. They don't help. They destroy because what they're doing is they're taking away freedom. It's the the minimum yeah. wage, like right now. I technically couldn't afford to employ a base of 100 employees or 10 or five under minimum wage. That doesn't that doesn't. For example, how is a black person straight out of high school who can't afford college supposed to get real skills if they can't get hired somewhere and I can't afford to pay them minimum wage? And if I don't pay them minimum wage, they lock me up or they find my business. But if this person who maybe is living at home with their parents and it's like. They don't need to make a whole lot of money, but if I pay them five bucks an hour or I take care of their gas and I buy them lunch every day, they can come get real skills. And after a year or two, I can send them, you know, go on and now they can get a job. If you intern under me, like you're worth 50 to 60, $70,000 salary in two years. Look at the, the, look at the people that just read my book. Imagine working under me, a person that read my book. And, and, and bought lunch for me a few times is making half a million dollars in 18 months. Imagine if you worked under me five days a week, but you can't even do it because it's not legal. <laughs> so, so, yeah. so how do you even yep. get job experience? And then when we look at the, they say, oh, youth unemployment is an all time high. Yeah. Cause you got the minimum wage. Remember when kids had newspaper routes, where is that? It doesn't even exist anymore. Now you got some old dude who's got to hop in his van and, and, and do that. Right. And, and, yeah. and maybe he could he could probably enterprise and he could have uh, a newspaper route and hire people under him. But he can't do that because he's got to pay everybody minimum wages, 15 dollars an hour. By the time he does that, there's no profit left. Yeah, I like that you're bringing it up from this angle, because most people that try and uh, argue against minimum wage, they'll make arguments about 
from an employer perspective and well, employers will have to fire some people and blah, blah, blah. And they, and they, or if they're arguing for minimum wage, they'll argue uh, that people are entitled to a certain amount of money and they need a living wage and all that kind of thing. But really one of the most devastating things about minimum wage is exactly what you're talking about is the first couple rungs of that ladder. You can never get on those rungs and therefore you never get to the top of that ladder. Um, yeah. And it's, who does, it's who really does minimum wage help. It helps the large corporations. Absolutely. Because they have the money and they can be innovative. They say, all right, fine, I'll just outsource to Ukraine or I'll outsource to India or I'll do what McDonald's did and just install computers or yep. just turn their jobs into automation. <laughs> I, wait, wait, I'm so glad you brought up McDonald's, by the way, because I remember this years ago there was a minimum wage battle and I was doing some research on it and people were I think McDonald's was even, you know, in, involved in the battle somehow. And it turned out at the time I looked it up. And the CEO of McDonald's had a robotics background. And I was thinking to myself, you guys are idiots. You know what this guy's going to do, right? You're like pressuring him to increase minimum wage. What do you think he's going to do? He comes from the robotics industry. <laughs> he's going to replace you with a robot. Of course right? he is. Of course yeah. he is. But um, if you destroyed minimum wage, they can get their job experience. That's right. This is so interesting to me because one of the things I've talk, talked with Carter about, Brian, is that um, when I was really ensconced in my echo chamber on the SJW left, I didn't hear a lot of moral arguments for the opposing positions. So for example, people would say, and it was just taken as a given as this accepted truth, just like gravity, they would say, well, of course, if you care about people, you want to raise the minimum wage. I mean, right. it's a moral argument. You care about people, you want to pay them more money, right? Yeah. I think the people who, whether they identify as conservative or hotep or libertarian or whatever, have to get better at making these moral arguments the way that you are yeah. about why they oppose. Because that's, I had never even heard this argument before. Because they won't allow you to hear that argument. When you're in that SJW echo chamber, they're going to say, oh, capitalism is rooted in white supremacy. It's racist. And that, guy, that black guy right there is a coon. So you're not even going to hear that argument. You won't even make it to you. Yeah. And that's yeah. and that goes back to like rules for radical. Um uh rule number five by Solinsky is demonize your enemy's argument, demonize his most potent weapon, right? And the most potent weapon is capitalism, right? Capitalism, free market capitalism is a beautiful thing. That's part of the American dream. Why do people come to America? They sure as hell don't come to America to get a job. They come to America to be an entrepreneur. America was built based upon entrepreneurship. And all these socialist policies do is they hurt the little entrepreneur. How do yep. people rise? For example, we practice black economics and we say all white people are evil. Well, who's going to hire the black people if all white people are evil? You need a black entrepreneur. Well, the black entrepreneur can't hire you because he can't afford to or it's not legal. Right. And when I say it's not legal, it's because you might say, oh, they're running a hair salon out of their house. Oh, that's illegal under communism. You ain't allowed to do that. Right. Yeah. Or, yeah. or they'll say, um, to, to, to do hair, you need to get a license. Now, I'm a black person. White people don't know about black hair. But you got to go to a white <laughs> man to get a license to do black hair. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I should well, tell you as the white person how to get a license from us to do black hair. That's funny. <laughs> you know... I've been pushing during these uh, lockdowns. We've recently decided it's the 20s again, right? Yeah. And with all of all of these, in, you know, the way that they've ramped up all these different measures, they've stuck their nose in businesses more than in the past. 
I think we're going to enter, it's like a new prohibition era. So we just need to start doing speakeasies for everything, like speakeasy yes. hair salon out of your house. <laughs> just well, do it. Well, when like, we talk about prohibition, prohibition's another thing that only benefited the wealthy. Yes. Uh, look at John F. Kennedy's father. He was big on bootlegging. Look That's at how he made his money, right? That was that was his rise to fame. Bootlegging. Yeah, yeah. Ex exactly. This and, and and look at the people who had religious exemptions. There were people who under prohibition have religious exemption were allowed a certain amount of barrels of alcohol each year. What do you think they did with those barrels of alcohol? They sure as hell weren't consuming them. They were getting rich off of that stuff. But what they do is they make it illegal until they can figure out how to tax it and how to turn it into an industry, right? And 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 then and then it may turn into a monopoly. And then once they figured out, they did the same thing with marijuana, right? They said hey. before we're gonna we're gonna make this thing illegal. They did it to hemp. We're gonna make this thing illegal until we figure out, you know, how to get our grubby hands on it. And then it's legal now after you'd incarcerated everybody. Right. <laughs> you know what right. you're and making me think of is uh, here in Texas. I learned that during prohibition. All the wineries, the reason why the wine, so there's a lot of wineries here and it's quickly becoming like the second, I think, most visited wine destination outside of Sonoma and stuff in California. And, but during prohibition in Texas, they forced all the wineries to rip their rootstock out of the ground. So not only could they not produce wine, they had to rip the rootstock out. So the wine here is not as old. The vines are, they don't have old vine wine here because they destroyed all those old vine wineries mm. except for one there's one in the state that was allowed to stay open for religious exemptions <laughs> <laughs> um, and they, they probably have the best wine now they got the old fine wine they yeah. got the old aged wine they created a yeah. monopoly on it and and that's why i said uh, you know it's funny about capitalism i say capitalism leads to socialism and communism and and the reason why is because after you win the game of communism, what do you do? You go back and use your power to change the rules so nobody else can come back and win the game behind you. And the best way to do that is install socialism and communism to put that gate up so few people can rise the ranks and compete with you. I think that that's something that we try and talk about, but I think it's really widely misunderstood, which is what you're saying, which is that these all of these regulations that people think are helping the little guy are actually helping large companies maintain status quo and yes. and locking the little guy out yes. all of them um yeah and but who, people view who, them as these solutions as somehow these are solutions to problems and they're not who who benefited right now from the whole marijuana boom rich people right because right. they're yeah. the only ones who can afford to pay for the license to pay for um the hydroponic facilities to pay the rent, right? Well, now, if you're going to bring up marijuana, by the way, I just want to throw this out. So I was in, I, w I ran in a, a cannabis accelerator in California. And okay. I'll tell you right now, the, I mean, I left the industry, but um, the way that California regulators got there, as you call them, grubby little hands into everything. I mean, it there the taxes... Yeah. Were on on just a a pound were like more than the previous cost, like more than the cost to produce it. It was like it got to be the point where people you actually still have a thriving black market in California. Yeah, because it's too expensive to do it the quote right way or the legal way. Yes, they, they're that they're that 
they're that grubby and greedy little bureaucrats trying to get and you know by the way the only people that get the the rules to work for them they afford lobbyists or the the rich people come in from out of town they afford lobbyists they buy some people they help write the rules and oh look we can comply with this and this and this but you guys who've been doing this for 20 years underground can't surface yet because you don't have the capital to just come clean and do it the right way because the right way is prohibitively expensive yeah, I, I was speaking to some of my black market buddies and it's, you know, I asked him, you know, you feel threatened by this whole thing. And he's like, no, it's cheaper to buy for me than it is to go to dispensary <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and you're getting the same stuff, if not better for me. Right. Because because yeah. technically the growers are supplying both. Yep. The growers are supplying the black market and the white market. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Brian, can I ask you, can I switch gears here for a second and ask yeah. you a question about, so when I was looking up HOTEP and trying to define it, mm. um, I one of the definitions I saw was black nationalist. Yeah. Do you consider yourself black nationalist? And and if so, how do you define that? Um, or does it no, not matter? I, 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 in some ways, right? Like that term black nationalist has so much dirt that comes along with it nationalism period you know and you say nationalism uh, you know especially the sjw you know they're like oh my god nationalism right <laughs> um so in some ways like i believe in nepotistic practices right you know if black people are doing bad the solution is not congress the solution is look at yourself and provide for yourself so in that way i guess you can say i'm a black nationalist um but I would have to define nationalism first. Mm -hmm. And to me, nationalism is tribalism and tribalism is natural. People naturally group up based upon their tribes. You see it in sports, right? Mm -hmm. It's just people are naturally tribal. It just is what it is. All organisms are tribal. So um, in, in that sense, yeah, I guess you can say that, you know, but I don't like somebody asking today, can white people be hotep? And I'm like, Absolutely. Because Hotep is a mindset, you know, it, it's, it's, it's how you think about the world. And um, I don't want to make it, for example, when we saw, I was talking about the history of the conscious community, the history of the conscious community was very anti-white. Mm -hmm. You weren't, you know, white people weren't allowed in these spaces or you get looked at in these spaces. And these are my, my forefathers. These are, you know, the, the progenitors of me. So I was studying my past and my leaders and I'm like, where did they go wrong? And there were several places they went wrong. One of them was in the, in, in the field of finance because um, we had so many poor righteous teachers. And the other one was white people. I'm like, I want to be the first black movement that works with white people. Interesting. You know, like yeah. if this is a white supremacist nation, maybe you should get some white people on your team. Right. <laughs> 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 Scott Adams so, said um, the greatest untapped resource for black America is white America. There's a lot of white people that want to help. Right. And I'm like, shit. Yeah. White people can be, you know, your money is green. My, you know, come on, come help. Let's work. Let's, you know, it, it, you, uh, a, a nation is only as great as its lower caste. So if we uplift the lower class, everybody goes up. Yeah. I think a lot of those white people though, that want to help, uh, are duped into thinking they're helping by pushing forth policies that you would say are not a help at all. And not my actually, white people. 
No, not yeah. not your wife. Right. I'm just saying, right. just generally. And this kind of leads me to a, a question I had earlier. You mentioned integration, um, and you cited like the Japanese having their own community. And Carrie brought up the Koreans, and 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 I think the Chinese as well. Um, that's true, but there is there's something that I've I see those communities as not wholly insular in the sense that there's not a stigma against integrating into society as large for people that are in those communities. If you're Chinese and you come to the US, no one says, how could you go to hang out with white people and go get a job with white people and do things with white people? No one criticizes you for they may be there to support you if you're part of the Chinese community. But there's not a there's no equivalent of an Uncle Tom derogative derogatory con like label that that's you're on that the Chinese you're aware person. of that you're aware of well my mm -hmm. wife is Chinese oh. and she's not aware of any either so I, I'm pretty sure that's true like there's not a th there's derogatory comments there's a uh, lot of that coming up in fact when you go look at the movie it man it mm -hmm. talks about some of that history and this is historical fact where yeah they was like yo what you doing with the white man but and today still, some today it still exists they're just not loud about it. Mm. If you go to China right now, you got Chinese only places. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's in China. I mean, I've spent a right. lot of time in Japan, too. And it was actually good for me because I got to. Oh, this is what it feels like to be a minority who's discriminated against. Like you would go into a bar and they would, like, you know, everything would stop and they would be like, we're closed. <laughs> Look around yeah. and like you're clearly yeah. not closed, but I'm just not allowed. I get that. I'm, I'm leaving, man. Uh, yeah. So I, I get like, that, but like in America, in they City, seem right? to be very good at integrating, right? Or no? Um, um, I wouldn't call it integration. I wouldn't even call it assimilation. I would just say cooperation is is hmm. better term. Um, you see, when you go to New York, you got Chinatown. You go down Chinatown, you can't read those signs unless you read Chinese. Sure. Right? So you don't need some of those things you're talking about when you've preserved your culture, when you've insulated at least your space. Black people haven't even insulated their space, which is why you have all these other nonsense terms like coon and sellout and all this other stuff, because you ain't got no space. You see, when you got a space, you don't got to use those terms because you got your own. It's like, yeah, I can go work with white people, but at the end of the day, when it's the Chinese New Year, I'm throwing on my traditional garments and we got the dragon. Right. right? right. And we're coming out, and we're dancing with the dragon. Right. So you can do that when you have your own. Black people have their has had their culture stripped from them by the abolitionists. So you blame the abolitionists for stripping the culture from blacks. Get into this. Yes. This is interesting. When you talk about when we talk about um, when the abolitionists come down into uh, the South and they're, they're telling the white folks down there, you know, the new rules, right? They send an army down the new rules. And then they send down their, uh, white, uh, Victorian women, Puritans. Let's, let's, let's come forward. Board of education, Brown versus the board of education, right inside Brown or board of, uh, right inside of that, it, it, they say assimilate with the culture. Hmm. <laughs> right inside that bill, that's that Supreme Court case. 
assimilate these black people to the culture. Same thing happened when they went down to teach black folks. It wasn't about teaching black folks to read and write. It was about teaching black folks how to assimilate into white culture. Can I ask you what you, there's, there's some, a distinction that Carter and I uh, sometimes draw, or he was the first to draw it for me. When he talks about culture, he said, sometimes people are talking about two different things that culture is a series is, um, can be like a set of philosophical beliefs, like what underpins the founding of your civilization or your culture. Um, and then on the other side, culture can be a lot of more, um, innocuous things like, uh, you know, your, your specific cultural food or dress or dance or festivals, music, art, stuff like that. And so when you're talking about the eradication of, um, black culture, are you talking about both or one or more than the other or all of the above? Also, let's look at the scientific definition of the term culture. Culture, you might look at a Petri dish and it's something where something supports life and grows. If your culture doesn't support life, Mm -hmm. you don't have a culture. That's in my personal opinion. So when I think about black people, I'm like, we don't have a culture. Where is our traditional dress? We wear the white man suit. I've thrown away all my white man ties and suits. I don't wear it anymore. In fact, when you go look at the history of black people in the suit, even the Philippines, they wore something called a zoot suit, which was a mockery of the suit, right? Before, when you wore the suit, it was tapered and it had fit properly. And then what we did was we wore it all extra baggy. You see it mm-hmm. in the beginning of Malcolm X. We wore it all extra baggy. We were not wanting to assimilate. We were mocking the suit, right? So the lack of culture breeded a new culture that we took from their culture, right? So this is what happens when you're a lost tribe. You're finding ways to find yourself. And that's what black people are. We're a lost tribe. We don't know who we are. You got black people who say, you know, um, I say, let's go back to Africa. I'm not from Africa. What part of Africa? Blah, 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 blah. Then you ask them about slavery and they'll say, well, the white man brought me from Africa. So it's like, which one is it? (laughs) You can't hold both of those at the same exact time. You got to pick one. Are you African or are you not? So when I dress up, I wear the traditional garments of Ghana. Mm. Right. That's that's what I do, because I don't know my culture. I've been assimilated. I don't have a language. I speak English. I speak the Anglo-Saxon language. I speak the Queen's English. And the better I speak the Queen or King's English, the better I do in this society, this white liberal dominated society. Right? You say, oh, look at this black guy. He speaks so well. He's got a good command of the language. He's got a great vocabulary. But where is my language? Where is my vocabulary? I don't have that. We've been fully assimilated. And that is the huge problem. When you talk about the Chinese, yeah, the Chinese, they might not use some of that language, but they have their own language. <laughs> yeah. They definitely have a culture that they can use as a referent so they can distinguish themselves like, oh, this is American culture. This is Chinese culture. And there's yeah. consciousness of any assimilation that they're doing or any integration. They know where they're going from and to, and they, can, they see that line because it's very clear. And so what I'm hearing you say is there's no, you don't know where you're going from. You're lost in that, in the sense that you feel like there's, there's a no starting point, but here you are in a culture that doesn't feel like yours. Yeah. Yeah. So now we're forced to, now we're forced to, to, to use 
the tools that have been given to us and the and the and the system that has been given to us to try to benefit ourselves, right? And it's it's very difficult. I and mean, I can't say it's it's easy, but that's what we have to do, you know? And 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 in order to do that, you gotta work together. You gotta work with somebody that's willing to help. That's why I'm not, you know, ostracizing white people. I'm like, you willing to help? I need help. We need help, mm-hmm. you know. Like I got this white guy that's doing a film for us. He's like, yo, if you got any black kids that want to learn film, send them to me. I'll teach them for free. You know what I mean? Now, you know, we just, like I said, Hotep Nation, our 501 would have never been built if I depended on black people. Just wouldn't. We are just way too lost. We don't have the capital. Uh, Not enough of us have the skills. Not enough of us have the experience or the expertise. When I think about myself, I'm like, I'm one of the lucky ones. I grew up in a six-figure household income. I was born with a silver spoon in my mouth. My mother and my father earned six figures. My mother worked for a Fortune 500 company. My dad was one of two electrical, one of two black electrical inspectors in the state of New Jersey. And he dealt with racism in, as far as that was concerned. He'd go on a job site and he'd say, send me a different inspector. You know, this guy is too, yeah. too hard on me. You know what I mean? So, but I come from a place where when we moved, when we moved on our block in New Jersey, uh, the neighbor across the street who was very nice to me, some Italian folks, they said, you know, before you moved in, we had a block party every year. And for some reason, it stopped when you moved in. Well, I think a lot of people were upset because we had the biggest house on the block. Hey, <laughs> 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 right? and, 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 and some of the nicest lawns. In fact, they defaced our lawn. You know, wow. We, you know, we had a really great manicured lawn. And then one summer, it just the whole thing, you know, had yellow patches just out of nowhere. So obviously at night, somebody came through and put poison. In. So we had to, we just resided the thing and kept it moving. But we had the ability to do that. But I look at myself as one of the, one of the lucky ones who had, you know, everything. I, I was playing with computers since 80s, right? I, was, I built my first website in the, in, in the 90s, right? I was there at the dawn of the internet when it came to the public. I'm one of the lucky ones. I'm one of the few. I'm not going to find another one of me within the next 100 miles. So obviously I can't work with other black people. I got to include white people because it's a white person closer to my job experience than it is a black person. So I'm going to have to work with white people to build my people up. And plus my people have been so assimilated in this culture, don't realize it. We've been distracted by the, the, the circus, you know, of sports and entertainment, you know, where just yesterday we got a stimulus bill that came out and people are talking about they got superpowers and um, the NBA's back. And I'm just like, how are you complaining about white supremacy and that whole league is owned by white people? Like, where are our priorities? So I know I can't get through to these people. So I just like we got this whole whole, whole Monica. We just say Hotep and Bill. So I just mind my business, just build companies. That sounds like what I've heard from uh, Bitcoin. Whole, what is it? Hodel and Bill. Hodel. I'm still learning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hotep and Bill. Yeah. So you're reminding me of, you're making me think of something that I'm not sure I'm going to be very articulate because it's a semi-formed thought right now. But yeah. something that I've I've noticed that, well, we know that the left historically does this. You could look at uh, look at anything. Look at the Russian Revolution. Look at Mao. Um, they're they're very big on eradicating previous culture so that they can instill the socialist utopia or whatever you know Marxist utopia they want. And they start with you know they they produce things like Year Zero. They they vilify the old the four olds. They go after they try and tear stuff down so that they can produce their their utopia. Um, 
And something that I've I've noticed in culture just in my life is a trend actually towards the eradication of pockets of culture. And I've noticed it more in Europe where like I, I don't um, – let's just take France as an example, right? Okay. Um, there's this vilification of of anyone who says, well, French should have the historically French culture and French people and uh, – there's a there's a Frenchness. I don't even know what the French Frenchness is really, but like there's there's something yeah. about Frenchness being French, um, and that should be preserved in some way. And the French historically mm. were very good at preserving their language and everything else. They're, they're very you know focused on that. And you see a lot of people on the far right complaining about uh, immigration being a way being t- like tearing down French culture because there's no forced assimilation. And they're complaining about all this. And, you know, I understand, I understand the, you know, I don't think people should be treated differently because they're from someplace or whatever. I I get all that. But part of me has this feeling of like, well, you know, last time I was in Paris is probably 15 years ago. I don't know, maybe longer. Is Paris going to be around for my daughter in the sense that it was before? Is there going to be a Parisian culture or Mm. is that just getting lost? And I look at, you know, when you talk about the, black American culture, I, that's an example to me of something that I see like, oh, that was pretty eradicated. Like that was lost. That was Mm. like, that culture was destroyed and Mm. you almost have to kind of rebuild it. Are we in the process because we're on this kind of Marxist zealot path of just destroying cultures generally around the world? Mm. And, you know, it just happened to you guys first for obvious reasons, but is that happening yeah. generally or am I making yeah, any yeah, sense? Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, the goal of globalism is to come in, c- uh, create homogeneity, homogeneity, right? And right. and basically they want everybody to be the same because then it's easy to propagandize. You see, when you think different and I think different and this tribe thinks different and that tribe thinks different, there's no way to create one propaganda program for all of us. You would need a propaganda program for each tribe, and that's just too difficult to do. So the thing you got to do is just try to make everybody homogenous. And once you do that, then we can just make everybody think the same. So that's that's definitely like part of the globalist agenda. So you would say that they would not even – they would oppose the rebuilding of a black culture within the U.S. entirely anyway because they, they don't want yeah. really any cultures. Yeah. I mean look at the black leaders they give us. They're basically white. Or the or they would I think they would be selling and I think that I think mainstream culture has been selling a really cheap kind of black culture to mm. black people mm-hmm. for a long time. Yeah. Um, and even looking at like the little that I know about um, early rap and hip hop and then how that when it became commercialized and like brought into the mainstream and then sold back, it was different. It's yeah. about different things, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, I think I think that there's this effort to sell a kind of cultural blackness that's not necessarily, from my outside perspective, not necessarily beneficial to black people. Yeah, I mean, l- let's look but, at Black Lives Matter. The name mm-hmm. is Black Lives Matter, but it ain't got nothing to do with black people. In fact, mm-hmm. it's turned into a black male hate group, which reminds yes. me of the KKK. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Black Lives Matter is the new KKK, in my opinion. They've been they've taken black and gay women and radicalized them to hate black men. We are the enemy. In fact, when their site first launched, they said mothers, parents, children. 
I'm just like, wait, parents? You mean mothers, fathers? Wait, are you just, oh, you erased us. Wow. Oh, that was a pretty cool trick. Even when I remember um, Caitlyn Jenner did something and I had a comment. I don't remember what my comment was. It's probably critical. And then I was attacked on Twitter, which is fine. But everybody had Black Lives Matter in a bio. And I'm just like, wait, this is a white person and you're attacking a black guy. And you, but you're defending this person because you've chosen your sexuality over your race. So Black Lives Matter is really an LGBT organization. And if that's if that's what they are, that's fine. Let's call it LGBT Lives Matter. Let's not call it Black Lives Matter. But that's what the white liberal does is when you have a movement that could possibly uplift black people, they have to come in and usurp it, take it over and redirect it. That's what the NAACP was. You know, I got a great book here. I recommend everybody read. You guys know about Marcus Garvey? Uh, I know who he is, but I don't I, like know from his Wikipedia. Enough. But that's yeah, not much. They don't tell you about this man. They don't tell you about this man, right? What's but this is this is select writings and speeches of Marcus Garvey. Um, I've I've actually have several copies of this. But Marcus Garvey talks about this. He talks about the NAACP and how he walks into branches, the NAACP, and they're full of nothing but uh, white passing Negroes. And and W.E.B. Du Bois, a so-called black man who's a mulatto who never saw a black person to the day he turned 20, supposed to be some sort of black leader. Right. Um, in fact, Honorable Marcus, Marcus Garvey actually met with the KKK. Right. And he talks about that. Right. Huh. But. But these are the leaders that they that they push to the back. They don't tell you about Marcus Garvey, right? They didn't tell you about how W. E. D. E. B. Du Bois sicked the white man on Marcus Garvey, had him extradited, locked up, thrown in jail for several years. This is what they do to black leaders: sabotage his business, the UNIA, right? His organization and all of his businesses, uh, Black Star Line, his his boating uh, expedition that goes back and forth to um, Africa. Right. This is what these these new black Negroes do. They destroy hoteps. When we think about forefathers of hotep, we think about Marcus Garvey. Right. This is this is the man we think about from Jamaica. My father's from Jamaica. So I, I was grew up around his history. When we talk to white people, I always ask them, you ever heard of Marcus Garvey? And you're like one of the few white people that heard of him. But you couldn't mm-hmm. tell me much about this guy. Right. No, right. right. And, and there's a reason for that. Right. Because they want you to have this one idea of what black people are and what they think like and what they should be. And that's and that's what what Black Lives Matter is. For example, um, when I had my blog, right, super popular blog, one of the reasons why I'm successful today, um, my staff was entirely gay men. And this is before the dawn of Black Lives Matter. So when Black Lives Matter came out and was like, hoteps are homophobes, I'm scratching my head like, y'all could have sworn I had a staff of seven gay men working for me and we all got on fine. One of them, Denzel, Gay young kid. He was like maybe 18, 19 at the time. He used to call me his uncle and I used to call him my nephew. It was like family to me. And I used to mentor this kid. Matter of fact, I, I, after we dissolved the blog, he went on to work with a celebrity and I helped him land that gig, you know? And, 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 and Vani is in, involved in a Republican movement and he's gone on to do great things. And me and Vani still keep in touch. So I'm like, how did this black thing turn into this LGBT thing? Oh, that's right. The white liberal stuck his nose in there. You know, whoever pays the bill, whoever pays the piper calls a tone. Well, and you mentioned black men before, and they've been vilified historically. And I'm, you know, I don't mm-hmm. like giving Republicans a free pass. So when I say Democrats do something, I, I don't mean only Democrats <laughs> are, are yeah. bad stuff. 
But right. I mean, if you look at how the black um, black families and uh, are were treated by policies for inner cities, um, it was you know if you have a black man around the house, you don't get your check, right? Yes. You, you, like okay, well that's a pretty negative like that's a pretty negative incentive. <laughs> Um, and you you're know, trying to help people, you're trying to help families, but God forbid if the dad is there, that's right. <laughs> I can't think of much more destructive to the, it's not just destructive to the black family because that's a generational thing. The kid grows up in that environment and like it propagates and like, this is a, that's a pretty damaging thing to do to a culture. Um, it's, it's really, it's really pernicious. And yet they they do it as from a moral high ground as if they're like they're they're so wonderful for doing this you should thank them look at look what we've done for you um I'm, you said something really controversial in. that i want to bring up hold you, on hold on let me carry carry you you oh, said sorry you you something? Something? yeah i wanted oh, to jump in and just say so you. what what you're talking about with um blm calling people homophobes and how you're saying it's like lgbt the way i view it at, i view it as they're sort of social justice ideology or whatever you want to call it. Some people call it identitarianism or leftist identitarianism. It's, it's a big tent or big ideology or, and there's a lot of doors to get into it, but they, they corrupt all those doors. Like there's, mm. I went in through the feminist door cause I'm a woman. Mm. So that's how they're going to reel me into it. Mm. Um, but there's, a, there's a race door. There's an LGBT door. Um, it's all about different types of identity. Now there's a fat door, there's a, a mental mm. health door, you know, mm. all the different ways in which you're oppressed. Yeah. And they're and they're, this ideology is going to fix things for you because yeah. you're an oppressed minority. Intersectionality. And, yes. Yes. Exactly. And then once you get in there, it's weird because they almost use. I view them as using um, all these different kind of isms or homophobia, sexism, racism, etc. Yeah. Fat phobia. They use whichever of those they need to, even if it doesn't make sense, but to kind of keep you in line. Yeah. So they will call uh, you homophobic, even right. though you have gay employees. It doesn't make any sense. But right. but that's easier to use than calling you racist, although they'll probably do that too, call you internally racist. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah, but it's any of those hammers. Like we got to interview, I don't know if you know on Twitter, uh, Buck Angel. He's uh, a trans man. He, he was one of like the original. He calls himself Trampa because okay. he transitioned a long time ago before it kind of became this trendy part of social justice now. But because he doesn't go along with a lot of the ideology, he doesn't go along with children transitioning and, you know, mm. hormone therapy and all this stuff. They'll call him transphobic. Mm. And it's mm. sort of like, but what? Like internally, <laughs> but just because it's a hammer to use, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, there's not really. I get, I get. I'm sorry. I'm kind of just rambling. No, no. Really when you look at there, when you look at that community, right? Mm. Trans people don't agree with a lot of this stuff. Yes, that, the SJW stuff. Gay people. I speak to gay people. I ain't with that. I don't know what they talk about. I'm gay. I might be gay, but I ain't running around telling anybody to be gay. In fact, I don't think people should be gay. I don't, you know, right. I've heard people, gay people say, I don't wish this on anybody. Right. I've heard I've them heard say that. that, right? It's the people who aren't among this community who are dictating the ideology. Mm-hmm. People who aren't trans, people who aren't gay, who are, who are dictating this ideology. And then, see, what socialists do is they take people who have been ignored, right? 
They take people who have legitimate problems, legitimate gripes, and they pay attention to them. And this is what Republicans and conservatives fail to do. They fail to look at the people who have been pushed to the outskirts of society and say, you got legit gripes too. How can I help you? So the socialist sees the opportunity in that and goes to those people and says, hey, I'll help you out. The problem is their solutions are very destructive to the entire nation and people themselves. You see what I'm saying? Intersectionality, when we look at that, that is one of the most divisive ideologies to ever be created, right? Intersectionality, to section people off based upon differences. Just like I told black people when, I, when, I, when they say, I say, let's go back to Africa. They say, oh, which part? There's a thousand nations in Africa, you know, 128 nations, whatever it is in Africa. And I'm like, I don't care how many differences there are. What do they have in common? And let's start there, right? Mm. The human species has more in common than we do have different. Yes. Right? Absolutely. So why are we looking at our differences and not our commonalities? Why are we trying to bring people together through our commonalities? When I look at black people, I say, if you make them put respect on your blackness, you ain't got to make them put respect on your gayness or your transness. You know, I spoke to my mom and I said, you know, back in your days, you know, uh, 60s, 50s, you know, what was it like with gay people, trans people? She's like, yeah, we had a uh, we had a trans person in our community and everybody knew she was trans and that was just who she was. And nobody bothers, no problem. We had gay people and it was never a problem. Right. In fact, when we look at the history of gay people in New York City, well, guess who 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 had a problem with gays? The government did. It was illegal to have these gay bars. <laughs> yeah. It's the same government these liberals are aligned with. And who helped these gays? The mob. Oh, I didn't know that. The mob is one of the people. <laughs> yeah, the Genovese family actually would, would buy clubs and turn them into gay bars. In fact, one of the Genovese, there was a gay woman whose husband was upset that she was gay. And I believe his name was Genovese. He goes in. This is in Thaddeus Russell's book, uh, Renegade History United States, great read. He, he he kills her husband and marries her and now he lets her just, you know, fornicate with women. Like, fine, go live your life now, right? So you got these people that they say are bad and evil that are actually standing up for gay rights. They talk about the patriarchy. The patriarchy fought for gay rights in New York City. A man did, a white man did. That's amazing. <laughs> so would you say they were starting gay speakeasies? Yes, that's exactly <laughs> yeah, what it was. Cool. It was illegal to have these gay bars and they were, and it was the Italian mob that was like, you know, the Italian mob, they'd pay off the police and say, look, you know, leave this yep. spot alone, you know, and they'd have raids and then they just go to war with the cops. And that's, that's what was the dawn of the village in New York city. That's what created the village. The mob created that and opened that space up for them. It damn sure government wasn't going to do that. So it wasn't the people. And that's what they try to make it seem like the homophobes were us. No, nah, it's not us. And and does the black community have some sort of homophobia? Yeah, we crack jokes. But the, the black community crack jokes on everybody. Fat, black, light-skinned, skinny, poor, rich. We got jokes for days. Like, nobody is exempt from jokes. Right. right? And that includes the gay community. So when did we become so sensitive? But we've never been the type of community that attack gay people. We were, the black community has always been very protective of people, like especially women. Well, and the more I learned about, and I'm still learning about the Harlem Renaissance, it was very gay positive, it seemed. 
Yes. And, and like singers like uh, Ma Rainey and Bessie Smith, you know, have this reputation for being very open uh, um, sexually and, 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 you know, on their, in the traveling shows and the people they worked with, um, that there wasn't that sort of uh, prejudice. Oh, absolutely. In fact, yeah. we had um, we had a gay mobster um, during the Harlem Renaissance. Um, damn, I want to find her name. I know it's in my notes oh, here. Cool. Um, but yeah, like like nobody was nobody was opposed to to some of this stuff, man. We you know we, we black community has always been very warm and loving of all types of people to a fault. I mean, that's how we got here. You know, we when they when when white folks landed on the shore of America, we opened up our arms and they opened up their arms. <laughs> you know, so we've been loving to a fault. Dark humor is allowed here. <laughs> so you you've been you've brought up a couple times you've brought up the difference between uh, government trying to do something and people doing it. Um, yes, and. I want to dig into that just a little bit because one of the things that's uh, that I he heard you say that I think might shock a lot of people is you seem to be against government-forced integration, which yes. I am as well, but I don't really talk about it much because, boy, boy, if I say that, I'll sound like a, a real uh, crazy. But yeah. um, I think you're pointing out that when when integration is forced, you actually end up with the opposite effects culturally. People resent that force, and it actually destroys any natural integration that might have happened voluntarily. Am I putting words in your mouth, or am I getting no, that no. wrong? What do you think about that? No, you're absolutely right. In fact, I, I just found some notes here. Um, Chicago Defender, July, 20, July 1923, it says, don'ts for newcomers. And this is for people from the South newly freed coming to the north and this is what some of the black people reporting you know don't hang out windows um don't walk the streets we uh, swearing at the top of your voice um don't clean your fingernails and pick your nose on the street don't flirt with the grocer especially if your hair is still chunky and full of bed lint don't don't sit out uh, on the front steps and bare feet in your undershirt don't drink moonshine especially before going joyriding <laughs> <laughs> right. Like there's there's a whole a whole list of don't brag, don't stand on corners and insult women who pass. Don't spit on the sidewalks. Don't be a flower flusher. Don't be a grouch. Don't be silly. Don't send your children to school half fed and half dressed. Don't let your children run you. Don't forget to make friends. There were these rules when they were releasing black people and they were assimilating us and and, and black people purporting some of this stuff. But my bad. Let's all. Oh, oh, I found it. Here she is. The um, black gangster. Madam Stephanie St. Clair. Oh my gosh, I've never heard of her. Yeah. I gotta look her up. Madam Stephanie St. Clair. Yeah, gangster. Okay. Gangster black. <laughs> and I believe was a lesbian. You know, nobody had, you better not had a problem with her. <laughs> but in fact, um, Bumpy Johnson was her bodyguard. And then Bumpy Johnson, Bumpy Johnson inherited, um, you know, basically uh, her gang, uh, so on and so forth um, uh, after her. Yeah. But Bumpy Johnson, that's how he learned um, organized crime. But my bad. Let's let's go back to your question. What'd you say again? OK. Mr. Ooh, Unsafe Space. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I was just. Uh, 
You said I, in, I was in just asking. Yeah, I was just asking. Like, if you think that when people are forced to integrate, it actually undermines the natural integration that they might do. Yeah. If left alone, like they might have eventually started to integrate a little bit more or or voluntarily associated. But when that association is forced, um, it maybe builds up some resentment and actually causes the opposite of the intended goal socially. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let me let me let me go back in time. Let's go back to um, pre-revolutionary war. We got whites defecting and going to live with the natives. Um, and then the uh, colonists um, put out bounties on white men and say, you catch these guys hanging out with natives, um, scalp them, cut their heads off, hang them, rewards for some of this stuff. This is some of the early beginnings of forced and the creation of racism. Um, then when you talk about how the United States government has treated white people in America, the working class, um, seizure of land, right? I know you guys are familiar with some of that history, right? Um, when you take from people and give to other people, it creates animosity, right? Um, and that's some of the roots of, of the racism where they see you're taking from me and you're giving to these black folks, right? So they, they have this resentment. But you got to understand, some of this racist stuff wasn't rich whites. It was poor whites. And really, like, it goes back to the whole scarcity thing. What you're talking about here is poor people fighting over the same resources. And had the government minded their business and let people cultivate land on their own and, 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 and create a living of their own, you might not have had that racism, you know? Um, what's the old phrase they say? Um, I might be poor, but at least I ain't black, right? <laughs> that that sort of mentality was pushed into the poor white Southerner because, you know, to be black was the worst thing ever. But that was created to make him feel better about being poor. Right. You know, and when these poor white people already didn't have enough and then now you're making them share with black people, you create even more animosity, you know, where the government should have just minded their business and let the free market reign supreme. And I think people would have come together uh, under better circumstances and would have been, you know, less racism, you know. I have a question. I'm confused. Um so I guess maybe for both of you, since you were saying you agree about force integration, Carter, do you not believe that it was right? It was the right move for the government to get rid of desegregation in public schools because those are. Are you public. asking me that question? Well, well, let's 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 talk about that. So what happened was okay. W.E.B. Du Bois goes down into the southern states and he speaks with some of the black people who are dealing with inequality. And when he spoke to them, the black folks said, we want the same government funding as the white schools. We pay taxes like them. We want the same government funding. He said, I'll only fight for that if you integrate. And they said to him, we're not concerned about going to white schools. We just want the same check that the government is sending them. 
we'll build our own schools. But it seems like the government's sending them money and not us money, but we're still under the same laws as them. That's unfair. So with that point, I agree. And W.B. Du Bois said, no, it's integration or nothing. Yeah. Well, and my position, which Carrie knows, I don't think there should be publicly funded schools in the first place. So, uh, no, I know that I know you believe that. But since there were publicly funded schools, you have to operate within reality, Carter. At that time, given that there were public schools, do you uh not think it was the right to desegregate? To force people to integrate? I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, that's like you're asking me about something that I don't think should exist anyway. What's the right way to do it? Like, I don't. I don't know. I, I certainly, if they said we want the same funding, I probably would have said, well, then why don't they just give the same funding? Like if that's your, that's how you're funding, why have this other, why have this other requirement that you've got to be bust here and you got to be there and blah, blah, blah. Like, I don't, if that's not what people want, why would you, why would you force that on people? I don't, I don't, I don't care who people it's associate about with. It's not my that business homo- who they decide to associate with. So it's about creating that homogenous society. That's right. That's right. Assimilating. Yeah. You know, you've also said some, I mean, I know I've heard you say some very controversial things historically and something that, that I, I find funny uh, about this sometimes is uh, you'll say something and people will go ape shit about it as if what you're saying is obviously false. Um, but of course I don't pretend to know history, so then got, I'll go look I it got up. The his- yeah, I got yeah, the I'll records. be like, well, let me go, let me go look it up. And then one of the, it just as an example, I'll throw out. Uh, I think you said that Hannibal was black, and I'll and 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 people got out. What I saw some people get how? Yeah, obviously, it's a, it's that's fake. So I looked up. Well, how do we know Hannibal's? How do we know what Hannibal looked like? How do we know? There's like one bust that was discovered in Italy that we think was Hannibal. Okay, that's not a lot of evidence. We do know that Tunisia is basically, it's in North Africa. It's half black, half Arab at this point, like most of the population. So it's not like an unreasonable claim to make, but people get so upset. Uh, and I don't know your, I don't even know your evidence. I don't know what, but people get so upset. Uh, I, I, I go. Why do people get so upset with like poking holes at some kind of narrative that doesn't, it doesn't really matter it doesn't matter to me what color Attila or not uh, Hannibal was, but why do people get mm. so upset about that kind of stuff? And why are mm. they so resistant to like hearing what you have to say about, yeah, here's my evidence. Mm. Yeah. I go based upon archeological evidence. And if you type in Hannibal coin, uh, you'll see two types of coins. You'll see one that comes later, but you'll see an ancient one of Carthage. And, uh, you know, Hannibal is known for trial, uh, you know, going through the Alps on the elephant. And what you'll see is a very Negro face, Negroid face. And on the other side of the coin, you'll see the elephant. And this is a Carthaginian coin. Now, this is definitely um, North America, uh, North Africa um, that we're talking about uh, of, uh, of Carthage. Um, and um, that would be uh, Hannibal Barker, right? Uh, why people get upset? Well, when you're told a lie the whole your whole life and you finally get the truth, the truth looks like a lie. But the thing is, this is the this when people talk about white supremacy, like that is the manifestation of white supremacy where you say something that shows that black people had some sort of 
power. We're able to live on their own. For example, on Joe Rogan, I said, um, I said, uh, black people in America, um, and when we are the natives, right? And um, I was fact checked, right? Right on the spot, Jamie fact checked me. He's like, yo, it happens to be true. Only 5% of the slaves came here from or from Africa. So where'd the rest of them come from? Because I'm using common sense, right? And, and I'm using historical data. When we go by historical data, uh, Columbus never landed in America. Columbus landed in the Caribbean. And when he got to the Caribbean, according to his own documents, he said it was black people everywhere. And he said the black people were traveling all throughout these different islands. In fact, in one of his letters, he talks about how one of the boats they had could, I think, 80 oars or 40 to 80 oars. I can't remember the number. Four and eight always get confused, obviously, for mathematical reasons, right? 40 or 80 oars is how big these boats were, larger than the boats he came on here with, right? So these people are able to transport themselves. So let's look at modern times. You got people coming over from Haiti on a chicken wing. <laughs> if they can, if, if somebody can come from Haiti to I'm gonna Florida, fact check that one on you. Hold on for a second. <laughs> if they can get here on a, a on a measly life raft that they you know threw together from Haiti to 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 Florida, obviously a settlement of people could have come here uh, years ago with these with these boats. The other thing is they like to paint us as like some backward savages, right? So one of the things they'll do is they'll show you um, Africans in this loincloth, right? Well, what people don't realize was it was hot and that's our bathing suit. At <laughs> night, at night, we came out with the fur. When you just look at black people now, we get money. What's the first thing we do? We put on fur, right? It's still in our DNA, right? So at night when it got cold, that's when we put on clothes, right? It was it was the people who didn't have our complexion, who couldn't survive under the sun that needed to cover up. Right. We didn't need to cover up. We were going fishing, whatever. But when you saw us in our loins, that's our bathing suit. When you see somebody at the beach now on the coast, what are they wearing? You don't go fully dressed to the beach. <laughs> so they'll paint these people as savages. They'll even paint them with huts. Right. And what they don't realize is these huts are post colonization. If you go look at the natives. Natives had long houses, right? Which today could be called a ranch home, right? A really large mansion ranch home, right? But we had buildings. We even had mounds with pyramids and all these different continents. But when you're not taught this history and somebody presents it to you, you're like, oh, this can't be true because McGraw-Hill and Halton Mifflin didn't teach me that. Oh, you mean the white liberal didn't teach you that? The, the Rockefeller-funded school system didn't teach you that? But my ancestors taught me that I did my studies. I know about, you know, history and, 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 and what came before, you know. But if you did your own research, all the uh, colonists will tell you about what they saw when they got here. The colonists, you know, they talk about savages and they say, oh, Africans are cannibals. Man, go look at cab cannibalism in Virginia. Type in cannibalism, Virginia. When the, when the, when the so-called settlers got here, they were eating themselves because they did not cultivate the land. That's why they were defecting to go live with the natives because they couldn't survive the winter. And the natives were, again, open arms, right? 
Yeah. Now I say, you know, natives were black. People were like, oh my God, what are you talking about? You never heard of the Bering Strait and so on and so forth. Yeah, but just because people came over to Bering Strait doesn't mean there are people not here already. Doesn't mean that those two um, types of people didn't come together and, you know, create some sort of miscegenation, you know, that's definitely doable. But again, go look at the Olmec statues in, in South America. They'll, they'll bring up all types of excuses why the Olmecs aren't really black people. But mm. go to Columbus's records. Go to um, uh, Cortez's records. Uh, Bartholomew de las Casas. Go to De Las Casas, one of the biggest slave owners coming out of Spain. They tell you about, about how many black people it saw there and I can't get here. So if South America is attached to North America, you mean we didn't travel up north? We just said, nah, we're just going to stay here, right? Obviously, we were traveling. That's what people do. It's natural, right? But again, white people were taught that they were superior. And not literally in that sense, just by the omission of history. Do you think it was done because so I, I'm in no position to argue historically because I'm actually quite retarded about history. Um, so I'm, I'm slowly kind of fixing my my historical knowledge. I, I appreciate that you're using primary sources because I think that's the way to do it, um, yeah. which is, it sounds like what you're doing. Do you think that the do you think that the reason that blacks have been portrayed as savages without any of these things and they were they had to be brought here? Do you think the reason is to to have some sort of moral justification for how they were treated so that they can yeah. be viewed as non-human in some way or less than human? And yeah. and therefore, if that's the case, then, well, it wasn't that bad that these are the things that the that yeah. the colonists. Yeah. Yeah. One thing, you know, a lot of people I hear white people say is, oh, you know, we colonized you and, and, and um, we gave you a better life. Look at America today. And I'm like, you think this is better than how we were living before? You are sadly mistaken. Um, we were very happy dancing on the beaches. We needed nothing. We we starved for nothing. But the problem is white people's idea of civilization is completely different personally from my idea of civilization. I mean, they say, oh, look, we gave you the cell phone. Well, the cost of that cell phone was somebody else's life and livelihood. The cobalt has to be mined from somewhere. The quartz has to be mined from somewhere, right? You call that civilized? I don't call that civilized. You know, this is a nation who has outlawed hemp and then created chemical plastic. You call that civilized? I don't call that civilized. The Industrial Revolution, you see white people, oh, the Industrial Revolution, it was so great. Yeah, Industrial Revolution caused a lot of pollution. And a lot of people died behind the Industrial Revolution. Um, I think our ancestors had a much better mastery over electricity and magnetism than we do today. What's the evidence for that one? That one I can ask. All you got to do is all you got to do is talk to Graham Hancock. He's the foremost authority on that about how it's type in electricity pyramid. And it should show you that, you know, they were manipulating. People think electricity is some sort of crazy phenomenon. And you go look at Tesla and Tesla was telling us about electricity he's like yo technically you can just pull electricity out of thin air like this isn't some hard thing to do it exists all around us it exists actually inside of our body and tesla himself said he was studying ancient african philosophy he was studying moorish sciences you see what the european did was they would go into 
um, Africa, they destroy, pillage, and but they pull the knowledge out. When we go and talk about Rome, we got to talk about the Vatican basement and the Vatican library, which you're not allowed into. And all of and all of the artifacts and knowledge that they pulled out of there. Well, there was a very secret society that had access to this knowledge. So what they do is they go in and they study these ancient texts and they come out and say, look what I discovered. You didn't discover shit. You studied some shit and then remixed it. And and and. and <laughs> And, and when you go look at and you go look at like some of these people, they admit it. You know, they're like, I didn't discover this stuff. This this is I just went and studied some old artifacts and documents. You know, go look at go look at uh, museums. You go to museums. It's 95 percent African and native history and 5 percent white history. Wow. So I, I guess I guess my question, though, is. So um, how is that civilization? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think so. I guess I have a more nuanced view. I, I don't like this idea that people say like, oh, we invented something from scratch. Like, obviously, everything is built upon everything. Like, I'm sure knowledge about many fields has been evolved over time through from ancient civilizations all the way up until we are now. And I, I would not doubt that a large percentage of those, especially because humans originated in Africa, supposedly, I'm not an anthropologist, but I think that's still considered true, um, then it would make sense that there's many different cultures, many of them black cultures that contributed to knowledge. We know we know that there were some great African kingdoms that did a lot of things. But I, I when you say things like they had this they understood electricity and magnetism. Like, if that were true, they would have been able to repel the Europeans. I mean, civilizations have conquered each other for like millennia, but like the 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 knowledge of electricity that we have now is that's a very that's a very Eurocentric different. that's a very Eurocentric ideology, and that's also rooted in so-called white supremacy. You know, how, to how say is it Eurocentric, uh, to, though, I mean, to, what inventions only did white they, people, how do they harness only white people, only only white people say shit like that. Right. They say, well, if you bad. had if you if you if you had, you know, all this technology, why couldn't you repel white people? Well, it's a very simple answer for that. It's very hard to repel a savage. It's very hard to repel a savage. So especially, your answer is an ad hominem against a race of people? Is that es your answer? Especially if you're a peaceful people. You know, I you're don't not disagree you're not, with that. What? You know, you have you have a you have, for example, let's go to ancient Rome. Are you familiar with the plague in ancient Rome? Assume not much. So okay. please, if you, right. you want to talk about history, just Rome had a traitor. Rome had a traitor. I can't remember his name. It slips my mind. He stops the grain coming from Africa into Italy, Rome, and they fall into famine. What does that tell you? Rome depended on Africa for sustenance. If you follow Maslow's law of hierarchy of needs, you understand how innovation is created. So where is innovation more likely to happen? Is it more likely to happen where there's bountifulness and, and, and abundance in Africa? Or is it in Rome? I mean, before Rome had a road, Africa had roads, had all types of 
um, uh, uh, structures, so on and so, so forth. When we go look at some of Greeks' greatest philosophers, where did they train? Pythagoras. He studied Egypt. for he studied yeah. for twelve years in Africa, right? You go down the list. Even your, your, the greatest physician. Who's a physician? Hippoc not Hippocrates. Um, the one they they claim is the 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 father of medicine. I thought it was Hippocrates, but I don't. know. Hippocrates. Thank you. So they claim he's the father of medicine. No, well, he, how is he the father of medicine if he had to train from somebody else? He's the father of medicine for white people. That's different, but he's not the father of medicine. Pythagoras created this thing called the Pythagorean theorem, right? But he trained with somebody for 12 years. This is, this was customary for Greeks to go to, uh, to, to go into Africa, train, and then come back and bring the knowledge back and then put it in Greek form so people could understand it. But these civilizations were very rudimentary when compared to uh, a civilization like uh, ancient Egypt. If you want to understand uh, math or, or, or the, the, the history of math, all you got to do is study the pyramids of Giza. That tells you that the people there had mastery of math through and through. I, I don't disagree with that much of what you're saying. And now, I don't... one more thing I'm going to say here. Okay. There's this thing called gunpowder. Yes. In the ancient world, gunpowder was used for fireworks. We were celebrating with this. Only the white mind decided, well, you know what? I could use this to kill people. We weren't thinking like that. Again, it's very hard to repel a savage who thinks like a savage. We weren't thinking about wars. When we had King Mansa Musa, right? King Mansa Musa goes into ancient Egypt and destroys the economy because he threw gold coins everywhere. He was trying to be benevolent, right? This is how we were acting. We were going around places spreading love. When, we, when the Moors went in and, and, and Europe, Europe was about to die. I think it was called the Dark Ages. How'd you escape the Dark Ages? Do you know? Well, I don't. I, I imagine what I know will be argued with by you. So tell me, how did we escape the Dark Ages? I'll let you go first. Well, I my understanding of the Moors and I mean, are you talking about the Crusades? I'm talking Is about that, the Moors. Uh, then then I don't know. Then tell me, how did we escape yeah. the Dark Ages? They, they, they came up uh, through the... Uh, What's the name of the, the, the peninsula that uh, Spain sits on? But they come up through there and yeah. they conquer so-called Spain. And then they get there and they're like, wait, y'all sleep with animals? You can't sleep with the animals. You got to put them in barns, right? And then we started building. We, you know, Europeans didn't even bathe. Some of them still don't bathe, but... Just... <laughs> you know, it was, in fact, some of these savages believe that to bathe was to, you know, desecrate your ancestors or something like that. I don't know. But this is how they were thinking. Like, they kept dirt on them, right? And this is why people were getting sick. When the Moors came up in there like, nah, you got to wash your ass. Now you're going to tell me that these are the people that are civilized and civilized the world? No, what they did was they came with their dirty ass and they spread smallpox and cowpox from sleeping with animals, 
right? Because that's what that stuff comes from, <laughs> right? You get it from animals. Go look at Jenner, right? Jenner, the, the father of vaccines. They were sleeping with, with the cows. And that's how you were catching some of this stuff. You wasn't cleaning the cows. You wasn't cleaning your ass. So you killed us with disease. You killed us with, with your religion, right? Because that was the first thing that conquered Africa was the Arab religion of Islam, right? So that's the first thing that divided up Africa. If it wasn't for Islam, Europe would not have conquered Africa. If it wasn't for the Arab, Europe never would have con conquered Africa. Africa was not taken by the sword. Africa was taken by the dollar and it was taken by religion. It was taken by the IMF. Right now, Africa is abundant in resources, but we don't control none of that because the, the so-called whites created this thing called fractional reserve currency. Well, we're right. on the same page for that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And this is this is how this is how people were, were were controlling nations and controlling kings, right? So when you say we could have repelled that, I mean, how do you repel somebody who decides to come up with a fiat currency? <laughs> <It's> re <laughs> That's really difficult because when you're thinking when you're thinking as a benevolent human being, you don't think, let me create fake money. That's some evil weird shit. Well, I'll agree that that's evil weird shit. Um, but I, I guess, I guess the only thing I'm pushing back on is this narrative that, uh, the Africans were this benevolent, peaceful society throughout all of history. And only the Europeans were the evil savages. And I think there's evidence on both sides that, that people have been, humans have conquered humans uh, on a tribal scale throughout all of history. And so. I'm kind of uninterested. It doesn't even make in... sense. That doesn't even make sense. Common, common sense wise. If, Why not? If... All right. Who outnumbers who? And by the way, those were your words. I heard you talk yeah. about humans being tribal and, and conquering each other. So I kind of expect that. Have you I've, changed I've, your mind? I, I actually said that humans are uh, naturally peaceful. Um, but who, who tribal? Can yeah. I can I interrupt here for a second? Yeah. I, I'm sorry. My internet is dragging. So I've been listening in little uh, clumps, <laughs> but I think I got most of it mm. and I'm not hearing you say, and, and maybe I'm wrong, but I don't, I don't believe, I think, I think I could probably agree with most of what you said. And I don't hear, uh, white people are inherently savage, although no. I can respect what you're doing with the use of that word. Mm. Um, historically, I, I understand what you're doing is flipping that word, which is traditionally used against black people yeah. um, to describe a different set of behaviors that were employed by white people in yeah. Africa, which which, by um, the way, I'll agree was savage. I'm not I'm not. Yeah. I mean, the culture was savage. Yeah. The culture. I mean, I mean, it's talking about a place that's not abundant in food. So you'd actually you'd probably be savage. But you said black people or Africans were conquering other nations. Well, how come we didn't conquer the Middle East? How come we didn't conquer Asia? How come we didn't conquer all of Europe if we were like that? You know who was like that? Alexander the Great because of his mother. They call him Alexander the Great. His mother said, you know, he's going to be this great conqueror. Da, 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 and she was the one that put those thoughts in his mind. And that man was a savage. He went around killing millions of people all because he wanted to conquer the whole globe. So who has a history of conquering? It's not Africa, because if we outnumber the European to today and has all throughout history, I mean, our numbers are increasing and, and, and the white population is decreasing. In fact, in, in the next 200 years, you guys won't be here, right? 
So yep. when we look at that, that information, if we were to conquer you, you wouldn't be here right now if we were conquerors. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> when Christopher sure Columbus follows logically, but okay. When we when we talk about Christopher Columbus and he goes to the Caribbean, he said these are some of the most docile people he ever met. He said they didn't even have weapons. Yeah. It is the savage out of France. It is the savage out of Spain. Spain and France have been some of the biggest savages throughout history. So let me ask you this. Let me ask you. So, because I, you know, we could argue about this, but I, I, I don't, I don't mean this trivially. I really, honestly, sincerely mean this. I kind of don't care too much because the question is, what do we do now, and what's the right thing to do now for people? I, Tell history I, I, as it is. Okay, but how does that? How does that help us? I mean, I agree with you that we we don't we shouldn't be telling people that uh, that uh, you know blacks were you know completely incapable and the, the you know, slave trade. We shouldn't we shouldn't be painting the narrative that we are. And I've heard you talk about how the current narrative disempowers Black Americans. Um, and like, I, and I agree with that. I think if people want to learn their history, they should be learning about the great things that they're their ancestors have done and not, you know, not be presented as if they're uh, backwards and thanks to this other nation, you know, here they are. Um, so I, 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 I don't disagree with that, I guess. But the question is moving forward now. Okay, so we teach people that we get rid of the narratives that you don't like in, in how history is taught. Then what? What happens after that? What's the goal what's like, the goal will that have a profound I effect said, on I, the I believe you said the goal the goal was to create some sort of um racial peace right or, or peace yeah. among all peoples right mm -hmm. but when we talk about teaching right history i mean to teach history without african history is to omit white history you don't even teach american history properly I mean, well, you got I people, you <laughs> I mean, <laughs> think about where America is because people don't have a good idea of their own American history. We have people who are practicing jingoism to this day. And it's just like, how do you have that? How do you have this love of this thing called the Constitution, yet your founding forefathers um, had to deal with something called the Whiskey Rebellion? They had installed something called the Comstock Act. And a whole bunch of other things that violated the Constitution. So how do you love this Absolutely. document, the Constitution, which I believe was the first communist document on this um, on this continent? But how did he? Oh people wow, that's a statement. But okay, it sure is. Yeah, um, which I define communism, socialism as a centralization of power, and that's what it was. You have thirteen divided colonies, and what you do, you you centralize the power under a federal government. That's why they call them the Federalist Papers. And then you have the anti-federalist papers. You centralized power. It's the first document to install communism. And under the Constitution, no laws have been have been passed that have been more communist outside of Soviet Union and Mao and all of that stuff. But we're probably close to that. Um, but I mean, Article One, Section Eight. You know, the Constitution has not been good to us, right? So if you taught history the way it is, maybe you'd have a population that would understand why their government just passed a stimulus bill that was attached to another bill that supplied foreign aid to a whole bunch of other nations while their nation people only got 600 bucks a piece. 
People would understand why that is. If you taught history like it is, the government would have not been overblown as it is now because people would have checked it a long time ago. If you told people that we live in a socialist system and not a capitalist system, they'd be trying to pull us back into a capitalist system. But what we did was we told people that they live under a capitalist system. You can't live under a capitalist system when you have a, a, a central bank. I mean, Stalin said one of the first things you need to do to install communism is to have a central bank. So would you want, do you think capitalism, as you're describing it, which sounds good to me, is superior to all these other forms of government that you're talking about? Like, is that the system that you want? For now. Okay. I mean, what I want is freedom. When I think of capitalism, I think freedom. Allow people to trade freely because people are going to trade. Allow them to do so freely without uh, a hidden hand in there manipulating the system, controlling prices, et cetera, et cetera, right? That's what I think of when I think of capitalism. The problem is fractional reserve currency, uh, counterfeiting, which is the fiat note. Um, shit, you want to talk about jingoism. What about United States told you you weren't allowed to own gold? Right, right. <laughs> And yeah, you know, I mean, you say, don't have to look America. very deeply at history to see that the principles that people think are in the Constitution that are somehow uh, these these great freedom loving liberty principles have basically never really been implemented. Well, I mean, it's also illegal for us to read the uh, WikiLeaks emails. I'm, ju I'm just <laughs> <right>. kidding. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> only uh, only Cuomo, what's his name, can do that. Chris Cuomo. Chris Cuomo. Um, but, but but to answer your question. A lot of what's wrong in the world can be righted by telling the truth. And it starts with history. The mm. reason why there is poor relations between white people and black people is because white people subconsciously look at black people as savages and believe we have nothing to contribute to society outside of music and entertainment. But if you told history and, and painted us as intellectuals, as the intellectuals we were, white people might look to us for intellectualism. But we don't tell that part of history. Do you name think it's a, just a, white people? Name an, African, think... name an African empire. I mean, Egypt is an African empire. <laughs> I mean, the Outside Pharaohs of were all Egypt. Africans. Outside I don't know much Africa. about. I don't know. I don't know my African history. Name one, and no. that's the problem. Yeah, you know what I mean. That's a problem. We had the Songhai Empire. We had the Mali Empire. Two major empires that traveled to the Americas under King Abu Ghari before. Christopher Columbus, Cristobal Colon, right? Why isn't that told? Right. Uh, A lot, like, like, and you asked me, well, what would happen if history was, was told correctly? And the correct answer to that is, I don't know. I like that. Well, I like it's the, um, I, I absolutely understand, I think the, uh, for me anyway, the pursuit of truth and a correct telling of history. And I do believe history is told incorrectly because I think it's told by um, whoever controls the present. Yes. And that that's a problem. I'm also worried about how in the future, how these years that we're living in right now are going to be told. Mm -hmm. <laughs> how yeah. will they be recorded? Um, I don't want to keep you too long. And honestly, selfishly, after uh, almost two hours, my brain shuts down. But <laughs> I would love to have you back because I think there's so Absolutely. much we could talk about. Sure. Anytime you want to come back, let us know. And I, um, 
I and also because at the end you guys were lagging. So I hope I was catching all of it there at the end. But uh, Brian, I was wondering if you could, for an ending, tell us something that is positive or something that you are excited about. Maybe if there is anything uh, come in this new year, because I know in, for a lot of people, this has been a really challenging 2020 has been really challenging in a lot of ways. And what is, I don't know, I guess I'm the silver lining person who's trying to look at like, what are some opportunities even in uh, tough times or um, whether that's tough political times or cultural times or whatever, what are you excited about? I'm sorry. I put you on the spot. Damn. <laughs> mm. You know, it's such a great question. I don't want to just say anything, right? Mm. Because a lot of things come to mind. Um, one of the things I'm excited about is the awakening of the white conservative and the realization of the totalitarian state we live under. Um, for so long, they were extremely back the blue, right? And lockdowns came around and you know, I did a poll today and I said, is it back to blue or fuck back to blue or fuck the police? And 52% at the last time I checked it were back to blue. Had I put that poll out last year, it'd be 90%. Wow. Right. And they're starting to understand. I'm going to pull from Murray Rothbard here, the anatomy of the state. Mm. And I'm excited for that. Um, I'm, I fall under agorism or anarchy or anarchism. You know, I'm, I'm much more closely aligned with these ideologies. Um, and I've slowly been hipping white conservatives. And they're like, especially at the stimulus bill yesterday, like, you know, teach me more about this anarchy. And I'm like, yes, <laughs> welcome. Right. <laughs> so I'm excited because when you say back to blue, you, you're basically saying back to state because the police, you know, they say, you know, police took an oath to protect and serve the people. No, that's something that was propagandized. Um, when you go look at the the legal wording behind what police do, they're here to protect property. That's what they were created for in, in, in the first place. You know, early days, they called them constables. Later on, they, 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 they had a, a group called the Pinkertons. Um, but, you know, when we go look at something like the Ludlow Massacre, right? And you had um, people in Colorado who, who didn't want to work the mines anymore. Actually, they were working the mines and they said, uh, you know, these living conditions stink. We're going to go live over here in the mountains and because the corporations decided not to improve their living conditions. They're like, screw it, we'll just pitch tents and live in the mountains. And um, they called the National Guard on them. You know, and that's why I say, like, if we start, if we start telling the, and the National Guard killed these people, that's why it's called the Ludlow Massacre. Wow, I've never right? even heard of this. Yeah. So your United States government under the National Guard murdered white people on American soil. This is not too long ago, right? In Colorado. And you go to Colorado type of look, you see a, 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 a sign there called the Ludlow Massacre, and they talk about the history. And as I said, if you, te if you teach people this history, it would destroy jingoism. And jingoism is the problem because it, it, it turns into love of the state. And, and that's the problem the white conservatives have had because black people have for a long time have complained about the state and they've complained about police. 
And that's one thing I've sided with them is like, yeah, I don't like police. You know, the police aren't actually here to help. All they do is ticket us and write tickets and write tickets and surveil us. And they actually don't do much protection. People say, oh, police can protect you. No, police don't actually protect you. They come and take a police report after you got your ass whooped or after you got shot. That's what they do. They take police reports and then an, uh, an investigator comes along, but they're not going to protect you from getting shot. You got to protect yourself. Right. But they're legally. In fact, after the um, the school shooting, Supreme Court has actually said that the police are not obligated to protect you. Yep, that's right. I remember that. Yeah, okay. this is what the Supreme Court has decided. The police are not legally obligated to protect your ass. Right. Right. And, and, and but they still purport this protect and serve idea that was purported through propaganda. So I'm very excited for them to release these ideas of propaganda, which come down, you know, from World War II times and whatnot. You know, propaganda was heavy during them days to try and create patriotism and whatnot in the movies and so forth. Um, but once we get the conservatives to understand that the state is the enemy, um, I think the left understands that sometimes. Um, but I think that's the middle ground. Like, Yesterday was one of the few days where the left and the right agreed when that stimulus came down. You know, stimulus yeah. bill came down for different. So reasons. once we, always, but yes, definitely for different interesting reasons. Interesting times when I see the left and right agree. I'm like, what's happening there? Mm. Like uh, Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself. Everyone agrees, mm -hmm. and the stimulus yeah. package sucks. Everyone agrees. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. those are interesting. Um, that that I just uh, one one quick question. By the way, I think that's a great answer and uh i'm ancap myself so i i i uh i um my guy well look i here's the thing here's what I, i'm gonna ask for your help i as i mentioned earlier i don't know a lot of history like i did i was an electrical engineer i didn't i was a math dude not history guy uh, and i've been learning more and reading more i have thaddeus russell's um uh, american history book on my shelf so i'll read that but before we talk next what should I read so that everything you're telling me isn't like totally new and bizarre and makes no sense to me? What like give me a short reading list of like um, what are some things I should it's read? It's only it's only it's only one book you need to read before our next talk. And as Destruction of Black Civilization by Chancellor Williams. Okay. And and that'll tell you about the peaceful um how we had peaceful wars in Africa. And okay. in, in fact, when the tribes had wars in Africa, you ever see these like mass, these African yeah. mass and they look scary. Yeah. That's that's how we fought wars. We'd scare each other. Like whoever <laughs> had the scariest mask won the war. I don't understand. How does Lockheed money, uh, Lockheed Martin make money off of that kind of a war? <laughs> Not... <laughs> <laughs> and how do we kill the undesirables in that war? I don't I'm really I'm, I'm losing the purpose of war. I don't get it. Uh, and it wasn't even to... bloodshed, you know, it wasn't even bloodshed in, in, our, in our wars. It wouldn't be bloodshed. We'd fight. We'd fist fight. You know, I wouldn't say we didn't fist fight, but like this idea of like chopping people up and all that, ew, like that wasn't, that wasn't our thing. Well, you know, it brings to mind something, um, and I may butcher some of this because it's been a while, but I remember uh, years ago learning about, you know, the Hutus and the Tutsis and the kind of yeah. bloody, the bloody war that happened between these to tribes, but, but learning that a lot of the, um, 
a lot of the animosity between these tribes was installed by the colonialists, by the yes. Dutch, I believe, right? Yes. So they were the first to come up with this system of racial superiority by 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 putting out the idea that, you know, one of these tribes is racially superior and doing all these measurements of nose size and facial size and stuff and yeah. instilling this hatred mm-hmm. between the two mm-hmm. groups. And so then, of course, when they pulled out is when you saw this manifest into... Yes, they did the same thing with the Zulu tribe in South Africa. The Zulu tribe is now 13 different denominations, right? But at one point, it was only one Zulu tribe. But like I said, a lot of the savagery you see in Africa is post-colonization. Yeah, you reminded me of that when you said that. But um, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much, Brian. We're going to put it in the um, in the in the uh, description here, but just remind people where they can find you online. Uh, Hotep Jesus. Um, I'm mostly on Twitter. Um, you can glue into my website, briansharp.co, Brian with the Y, Sharp with an E. It's the best place to keep up with me on, uh, you know, get my products, my books. I wrote a book on masculinity, which is uh, more relevant now than ever. And I wrote a book on marketing. And then I have uh, a, a, a jingoism destroying book coming uh, next year as well. Nice. Well, thank you very thank much you for so your much. time. Yeah. Thank you. Thank been... you for the thank you for challenging me during this conversation. I love I, I, I love that 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 part of the interview. No, it's been a pleasure. And uh, you've given me some homework to do, which I'm looking forward to. So thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. Have a, have a great holiday. You too. Thanks for watching. If you're new to the channel, we have a deep content library that includes interviews with everyone from Mike Cernovich to Megan Murphy, so go check it out. If you'd like to see more, please consider supporting the show by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on all the major social media platforms, at least for now, and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space chat on Telegram. See you there. Warning. This is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production has not been authorized by the cathedral. Pay no attention to it. For your protection, the following co-conspirators have been unpersoned and marked for cancellation. Our concern for your safety is sincere in every way. You can definitely trust us. Here's a fun fact, what happens online does not stay online forever. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Did you know that listening to CNN is not yet mandatory? Computer voice, Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.